Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 455 of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Man, uh, I know a lot of young leaders listen to this podcast. First of all, thank you to everybody who listens. You guys are so encouraging. Uh, We just passed 19 million downloads. I think we'll do something rather celebratory uh, once we hit 20 million. And just want to thank you so much for your kindness. Thank you so much for all the encouraging things we hear via email, on social. You guys are the best. Really, really grateful for you. Uh, Today, you, uh, particularly for young leaders who think, you know, I don't know whether I can really make a difference, Jessica Jackley joins us. She is a serial entrepreneur who shares her top lessons, acquired as the founder of multiple ventures, including Kiva, which I'm sure a lot of you have heard of as I have, and Altruists. So we'll talk to Jessica. Today's episode is brought to you by Promedia Fire, and they are taking on a limited number of social media management clients. So if you are looking for a solution... Sign up today at promediafire.com slash carry. And then buy our friends at Red Letter Challenge. Join them as they get discounted church packs, hundreds of dollars of free stuff. And pastors, you get a free book. All these resources are at redletterchallenge.com slash carry. Well, uh, I love bringing you people that I find interesting and you find interesting. Jessica Jackley is one of them. And, um, you know, one of these people who we know so many of the same people but had never met until we had this conversation, and uh, Jessica is a rock star. Uh, She is the CEO and founder of Altruist, the co-founder and general partner of Untapped Capital, and formerly was the founder of Kiva.org. She's the mama of four wonderful kids, and uh, she talks about what most successful entrepreneurs and leaders have in common, what Oprah taught her about preparation, how to ensure that success and failure don't determine your identity, and why touchy-feely, honest feedback is essential for growth. So uh, I am so excited to have this conversation with Jessica and bring it to you. Uh, We got a lot of great episodes coming up too. I'll give you a sneak peek into that as we close today's episode as well. So question for you, have you heard about the churches and ministries exploding because of Facebook's help? Uh, most likely you're not, because all you usually hear is negative news about social media, not positive things that are happening online. Promedia Fire just interviewed a pastor that now has 800,000 followers on Instagram and his church is exploding through a digital framework. Despite his success story, you may hear some people inside your church or organization say, well, let's just give up on social media. It's not working for us. Surely you can choose to ignore the influence of social media or even have no strategy at all. But if you do that, you'll be missing a huge opportunity. So would you like help growing online this holiday season? Right now, Promedia Fire is taking on a limited number of social media management clients. The pros and digital growth are just a few clicks away. You can head on over to promediafire.com slash carry to sign up. That's promediafire.com slash C-A-R-E-Y. And for our church leaders, how would you like to have 40% growth in small groups in 40 days? Or how about six weeks of done-for-you turnkey resources? Or how about unity in a divided time? Our friends at Red Letter Challenge are offering this and more with their 40-day challenge. Red Letter Challenge has become the experts in the 40-day all-in church series world. 
after completing more than 600 churchwide challenges in just over three years. Not only do their challenges center on Jesus, not politics, not culture, but Jesus, but their team walks with you the entire time from start to finish. And for the first time ever, they now have three 40-day challenges ready to go. They've got the original best-selling Red Letter Challenge, teaching five discipleship targets. They've got the Being Challenge, teaching five keystone habits of Jesus. And they've got the Forgiving Challenge, teaching the five phases of God's forgiveness that leads to freedom. The new year is just one of the single best times to launch a challenge, so you can let their team help kickstart your church growth in 2022, and wouldn't that be amazing? Great time to start the new year with Red Letter Challenge. So you can get discounted church packages, hundreds of dollars of free stuff, and pastors, you get a free book. All these resources are over at redletterchallenge.com slash carry. That's redletterchallenge.com forward slash C-A-R-E-Y. Well, let's dive into my conversation with Jessica Jackley. It's fascinating. I felt like this one could have gone on all day. Here we go. Jessica, welcome to the podcast. It's just so great to finally be sitting down with you and having a conversation in real life. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So you, I don't know whether you would consider yourself a serial entrepreneur, but it's quite the resume. Um, You're best known for founding Kiva, which is plenty. Like if that was your lifetime, that's fine. Like you did a good job. Thank you very much. But you are also the co-founder of Altruists and Untapped Capital and pro-founder. You were chief impact officer at Aspiration, GP at Spark Labs Global Ventures, and you were recently Walt Disney Imagineering's first entrepreneur in residence. You also teach at USC, have taught at Stanford. Um, did I get that even half right? Is that close? It's all fine. Yes. It's, it's all no, fine. You're correct. There's no errors. No errors. I've lectured at Stanford. I'm not at Stanford. I'm not uh, full-time faculty. You did a great job. You oh, okay. Job. Well, but but that's impressive. Like that's really <laughs> impressive. And you know, you're you're still young. Like you've got uh, four kids, four little kids. You well, do an awful lot. Like my goodness, what I what feel, drives all that? I feel really fortunate. I've gotten to work on a lot of things that I love, and I think um, the main drivers for me are I love people. Like really, like I really. I, if I had to name one competitive advantage, I really love people. I, I don't get tired of them. I think um, my Myers-Briggs at one point was, I, I took it and it was, is there 26 like possible points in extrovert, introvert? It was like mm. all extrovert. So if you want me to just wither away, <laughs> put me in a room by myself for days and that'll be it for me. So I really enjoy people. I enjoy knowing them, listening deeply understanding their stories, which I, I think can lead to some interesting insights um, that have led to ventures and projects and ideas. I also am very grateful. I'm not quite sure where, at what point in my life, this became such a, the air that I breathe, but I, early days in the church, feeling utterly just awash in love, mm. not just love from God, from the community around me, but from my family. I grew up in like the greatest family ever. My parents are the best. My brother's the best. So I've always felt very grateful for the love around me and that I've always had everything I need. And then I think the third thing, if I didn't, if I had to name three things, not that you forced me to, but I'm going to, I have this, um, it's not just hope, but I feel very completely, utterly convinced because of the experiences that I've gotten to have that change is possible. And it's so fun. It's so fun to get out there and try to invent new things or just push existing ideas forward that make the world a little better. 
So I feel super confident things can happen because I've gotten to be part of things that have happened. And it's just addictive. It's, it's, it's what I want to do with my waking, working, non-kid hours. Does this go back like your whole life? Is this a narrative you can trace out from the time you were young? Um, because you 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 have it. Well, let, let's start it there, and then and then I have another mm-hmm. question for you. Yeah, does this go sure. away, or did you cultivate? I so I think so. I mean, we should ask my parents. We should call them up. Yeah. Um, I feel. I think. I, well, I always wanted to do all the activities when I was little. I remember. I do remember feeling like my parents wanted me to choose one or two things and I wanted to send it for all the things, or I wanted to do three things in an evening or on a Saturday morning. And that being a little bit um, begrudgingly, but always, always supported. Mm. So I know I've always been busy. I've always wanted to try to get things going. And certainly the gratitude and the feeling of just deep security and safety in the world, that the world is a good place because of all the love surrounding me. I don't ever remember a time of not feeling that way. I do. I remember Many moments in my in my childhood, especially where it occurred to me, I'm certain I'm the happiest person on the planet. Like I, I am so. What else could I possibly ask for? Like, like really? Let's repeat. Like, like anybody out there who thinks they're they have more of a wonderful like, what else could I ask for? Sort of life. Let's have a conversation. <laughs> Not like it's a competition. I feel a little bit silly saying that I didn't plan on. No, saying no, but that's really but neat because I, I, I didn't feel that super, way. Super, super, super grateful. I, I got to think that's got to be a unicorn thing as a child to think I've got to be the happiest person on the planet and to think that more than once. Um, yeah. What do you do when you hit setbacks or have you had a lot of setbacks? For sure. I, there's a lot of things that I end up doing and thinking. My, my dad is this lover of, um, you know, your books of many different kind of business and leadership books. And I remember just being able to like walk up to his bookshelves as a kid. And when I was, I think nine, I found Seligman and I read Learned Optimism and it felt like magic, like a magic Mm. trick. The world could throw stuff at you that was challenging and you had a choice as to how you responded. Like really, you really did. And you could actually I mean, you can go way along the spectrum to the point of being delusional, but you know, right. you can actually see a situation and as you process what happened, put a lot of blame on yourself, make it a, this always happens to me sort of um, conclusion or look at it and say, wow, well, this happened. Here are the things that are that are okay about it. Here are the things that are not okay. And here's how I can learn and move forward. And you sort of do that processing, learn and move forward. So I think setbacks Yes, there's disappointment in their feelings. You feel those feelings and then you let them go. Um, you know, take your time, process them, et cetera. I'm not, I'm not that person that boxes them out. But I think you can choose what what of that experience could be useful and take it and learn, right? And and make things different or better the next time you have a similar situation. So I, I see it more as um an iterative process of learning and experimenting and trying and failing sometimes, but it's just about which assumptions proved out to be true and which didn't. Good to know. Let's try it again. No, I think that's a really helpful attitude. And by the way, my wife is reading Learned Optimism right now, and it's on my reading list. So one of those classics, right? That yeah. whole yeah. idea that you don't have to be a cynic. I want to write a book on cynicism someday. So I picked it up as part of the reading material for it. So oh, how I, can you be uncynical? I love that. You know, Please I think do. that's you a, a vote for me. 
Well, you know, we have had a battle and there's a lot of leaders right now. Here we are 18, 20 months into this craziness that has become our lives. And there's a lot of discouraged leaders. And I would love to know if, if you're comfortable, could you take us through a life or leadership setback and how you applied your, your attitude? Because I, I got to say, I, I've done hundreds of these interviews and you would be near the very top of the list of people who have an instant chemistry and bond with strangers. Like I felt that immediately. Sometimes it's like, oh yes, I'm here for the interview and you know, what do we do? And it's very mechanical. But uh, within about a minute, I felt like I had known you for a long, long time, which is a really wonderful, wonderful thing, Jessica. Well, um, I feel like we should stop here. That was great. This is a high point. Let's like quote. Okay, that's great. Of- Thanks <laughs> for being on the show. We appreciate it. Maybe we'll do a round okay. two one day. <laughs> Thank you. That means that's probably the highest compliment I think you could give a person. So I really mm-hmm. appreciate that. Thank no, you. and I mean it sincerely. But I think that probably goes a long way. And some of that may be God-given. That may be innate. That may be the way you're wired. Other people are not wired that way. Uh, But talk about a a leadership or life obstacle you hit that might have sidelined some people and how you tackled it. Well, which one of so many? (laughs) You get to choose. I have to say my second startup, so... Right. Let's rewind a little bit and we'll do a quick arc, quick overview okay. of the arc sure. of Kiva for me, from my vantage point. So, you know, I'm out of college. My first job was a temp job at um, Stanford Business School. I was there first, like filing and doing really basic uh, administrative work, which was fine. And I was grateful for the job, but it wasn't my dream. And I always felt like I was watching people come through those doors doing incredible things, like doing my dream jobs. Mm. And I didn't know how to get from where I was seated sort of behind the desk answering phones, et cetera, again, or, and to go, to go from there to what the people that came as students or speakers were doing. Fast forward like three years, I stayed, my job changed and evolved. Again, it was, lo- it was lovely. It was fine. I'm grateful because I had a, a, an amazing boss and it was, it, it paid the bills for me, but it wasn't, it wasn't my dream. And I, I decided I would just learn as much as I could while I was there. I stayed late after work one day and heard Dr. Muhammad Yunus speak. It was this it was fall of 03, three years before he would win the Nobel Peace Prize for his pioneering work in modern modern microfinance. And I heard a story that was so inspiring. Again, I'll fast. I'll go quickly. We can go back if you'd like. Mm. But he inspired me to quit that job, to move, to you know, fling myself out into the world and to learn about microfinance. And that adventure of working for a few months in East Africa, hearing stories of people who had received actually a small grant, not even a loan, but it was just enough to start. It was enough to get my bearings and understand what a tiny bit of capital could do in the right hands at the right time with the right training, right? So $1,500. As I learned those stories, it led to a bunch of insights that led to Kiva. Now, so I sort of accidentally became an entrepreneur for the first go around. I just wanted to do this very specific experiment where I shared stories of my new friends in East Africa with friends and family and allowed them to lend instead of donate. That was the very basic idea of Kiva. So that grew real fast. Okay. And so, that was the first in the world, right? Peer to peer. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Yes. We started the same week in October of 05 officially as prosper.com. And we got to okay. be, Chris Larson ended up becoming a friend and advisor and mentor in a lot of different ways, but there was the for-profit and the non-profit hmm. doing very different things, but both peer to peer lending platforms. So that grew really quickly, right? $3,000 for our pilot loan, $500,000 first year, $15 million second year, then $40 million, then $100 million. It's just, it's over $1.5 today. That So that, that worked, okay? The whole 
point of that story was that worked. I realized after a few years of growing that, that I could do stuff, that I could see, see, have an insight, right? See an opportunity and then go try to make it happen. Rally a team and go build something. And it's like, how much fun is that? There's nothing more fun. And so I wanted to do it again. So I started my second company, ProFounder. ProFounder, in short, was sort of a Kickstarter for Small Business America to raise actual investment funding based on either equity or revenue share. It was three years before the Jobs Act would become a thing. So it was pre-crowdfunding exemption. It was not technically like legal to do what we set out originally to try to do. We made it work through a bunch of dusty old state by state exemptions. It was like a legally, it was, it was like a Frankenstein-y set of rules to get done what we wanted to get done where entrepreneurs could raise their, their, you know, on average, I think they were raising 30 to $35,000 from friends and family. Anyway, it's a whole story. Pro-founder, Worked a little. It did not work like Kiva. It's hard to follow that, right? And for some reason, I decided I would read the book, Once You're Lucky, Twice You're Smart, right? Oh my gosh, mess with my mind. So here I am, ProFounder's not quite working as well. I very quickly, once my husband and I decided to get pregnant, very quickly got pregnant with twins. I'm about, I just had raised my second round of funding. It was this perfect storm of like, the startup was okay, but then the Jobs Act was becoming a thing and what we had built was becoming less, would become less relevant unless we really more or less started over. We, we were How did the, right the Jobs right Act time. impact you? How did the Jobs Act impact you? Just so the clarity? Jobs Act, which we actually helped author language in Title IV, was super exciting. But basically Title IV, the crowdfunding exemption, allows anybody to raise up to a million dollars from an unlimited number of unaccredited, unsophisticated inv- investors. This is a whole hmm. other I think quite interesting, but um, maybe not riveting <laughs> legal discussion. Sure, but basically sure. what we had made was like a way to crowdfund without legally crowdfunding from only private, you know, a private raise of capital from friends and family. This was a big, open, public, actually crowdfunding option for people to raise up to a million dollars. So we knew we could either like double down on that or we and pivot, or we could pause, see what happened, you know, once the SEC made rules around the law, do something new, or we could just say, you know what, we did what we could do. We tried to test and prove out the assumptions we had for the first two rounds of this funding. Let's wind things down, give some money and the actual assets back to investors and take a swing at something else when the dust settles a little bit. Mm. And because I was, I was pregnant with twins (laughs) and I was a second time, like chip on my shoulder, wanted to prove things, entrepreneur, even though I'm quite proud of the decision to not keep going at all costs, right? A lot of entrepreneurs get into this mode, I think. A lot of the venture community and others, and I'm part of that, right? But there's there's often a lot of pressure to keep going at all costs and figure it out. And it felt to me like this perfect storm was coming where, yeah, we could have raised more money. I'm, I, I'm not the worst at raising money for these ideas. They're great ideas. We had a great team, but it didn't feel quite right to do that with so much uncertainty, not just the whole, not just professionally, not just with the way the crowdfunding space was shifting so rapidly, but here I was about to become a parent for the first time. And I wanted to make sure I could honor both of those incredible roles that I was getting to play, right? As founder of a company, but also as a first time parent. So we wound the company down. That was really tough. And I look back and I've looked back again and again at that decision. And I wouldn't change it. It was the correct decision for my team, for investors, 
for me as a, a human being that wanted to be there for my new tiny babies and get my sea legs <laughs> as a mom. So it was a really, really long answer, but it's, it's, it's the big one. It's the big one for me professionally. Like I, wow. Kiva was a success. Co-founder was not. I've gotten invited to like fail con and those conferences where you talk about your failures. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm happy to do it. I don't know that I'd frame it as a failure completely, but it certainly was a different story than Kiva. And I had to sort of step back and redefine myself again, right? It happens a lot where you step back and say, I guess I'm bigger than this one venture. I'm bigger than this one event, this, this failure, this decision. It's not going to define who I am next. So I had to step back, take a deep breath, like start to raise some tiny babies who were, you know, the greatest gift of my whole life and then figure out how to recalibrate and figure out what was next. You covered so much in that. Let me, let me go here. How did you disentangle your identity? Because you're right. It would be tempting like that level of scale from a few thousand dollars to tens to hundreds to millions to 1.5 billion. Like that is a rocket ride. Very few people will ever you know, be able to be part of. And then you think, oh, I've got the Midas touch. Anything I do is going to grow. And then you run into ProFounder. Um, how did you, how did you figure out your identity in that? Because on the one hand, when you're riding that high, it's so easy to think, look at me, I'm awesome. And I am what I do. And then, you know, whoa, this one didn't work. Oh my goodness. I'm nothing. Right. How did you disentangle your, how did that not, it's my favorite quote from Winston Churchill, uh, success is moving from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. You did not, <laughs> you did not lose your enthusiasm. Um, how do you do that? Because a lot of leaders, that would have taken them out. I love that quote, first of all. <laughs> I need that like, <laughs> on my wall. Enthusiasm, love of people and enthusiasm. That's, I got uh -huh. that. I got that. Um, good to know. So, I think, let me be really thoughtful about this answer. Um, I felt that when you said, in a great way, when you said, oh yeah, you have this first success and you think you have the Midas touch. Mm. Well, why would, right? I did. I guess I did. I thought, oh, yeah. I know how to do this. Who knew? Good. Let's do it again. And you, you start to assign success to all of these things that happen, you know, because of you, as opposed to the truth, which is it's some are because, some are despite, some are <laughs> neutral, some yeah. are just 100% out of your control and they just uh -huh. happen. You had nothing to do with anything. Like it was the, the right thing at the right time. There were trends swirling around us that helped encourage that venture forward. So I think stepping back and recognizing the role that I had in both <laughs> and in anything that I tried to show up and make happen each day. It's very humbling, but it's it's good to sort of take stock of the finite influence that you have on what's happening to you and around you every day. And there's always room to grow. And that's it's a gift when you get lessons, when you get even tough ones and you see where you've made mistakes. But to be able to remind myself, I'm never just one thing. I'm a child of God. I am a, a smart person. I don't know a lot, but I know some things and I, I feel, I feel sure about a handful of things <laughs> and I can always step back to that, that, that foundation and start to move out again into the world from those places of certainty. 
because it is easy to feel like, well, I guess I don't know anything. I guess I'm useless. I guess my efforts were wrong, (laughs) misdirected, powerless. Mm -hmm. And so to define myself as a person, an imperfect person that still had potential, still had a lot of potential. We all always do. Right. Um, and there are the, there there were things that I could control, and there were ways to define myself that were never going to change. You know, I have this mission. I have a broader mission in my life, and I can show up in my work, whether it's paid work, service, you know, little side projects, full time jobs. There's always this portfolio of stuff that I'm doing that feeds into that mission, and some of it's going to work, and some of it's not going to work as well as I hoped, and some of it will reward me financially, and some of it will be a cost, but all of it, if it's an expression of what I believe and who I want to be in the world, all of it matters and none of it defines me completely. There's always, there's always, there are, there are other facets there. What is, if you're comfortable sharing, what is your mission statement for your life? You know, it's really funny. I actually got out my book to be like, I gotta, I gotta know if I, if I'm asked that question or other questions. But it's, it's, it's the, the, the core is love. And it, I know, look, I know to many leaders, it might sound very touchy feely and a little, somebody's out there rolling their eyes and I, it's okay. I get you. I feel you. But my intention, <laughs> I'm married to someone that would roll his eyes, even though he knows and loves me. <laughs> um, my intention is to do work that shows love in the world and allows other people to show love to each other by providing community and resources for people to reach their potential. So you look at the thread. Yes. Like you can get more specific, right? That it's sort of a headline and there's more specific things to talk about, but Kiva was this declaration to the world. Again, I'm so I'm speaking super selfishly, but to me, my heart says that was a way of saying to the world, see, everyone's worth it. Everyone deserves an opportunity. It's it's an opportunity machine now, right? It's, it's awesome. And the people that deserve opportunity might not be people that you know or have, they might not be like anybody you've ever met, but they were born with just as much potential as anybody. So they deserve the same kind of resources, the same access, same community, supporting them as much as possible as anybody. It's funny because when you when you mentioned the peer-to-peer, the beginnings of peer-to-peer and of crowdfunding, we were using the word crowdfunding. It was right. a new thing. It was it'll be this, it was the long form, right? It'll be this thing where a lot of people with a little bit of money will put it into a pile and it'll end up being a lot of money. Yay. <laughs> there was no shorthand yet. But what was really interesting about what we kicked off was we were betting on people that, I mean, I don't know, it's possible that Moses, one of the guys we worked with in the very early days, was one of the first, you know, Ugandan bloggers that was kind of out on the scene. (laughs) It was people, the other peer, right? It was peer-to-peer, and it was a different combination than a lot of other platforms, a lot of other technologies enabled or encouraged. So, Well, I appreciate the humility in saying there was something in the air. It was good timing. It was all of those things. And yet, obviously, you and the team did something that a lot of organizations just never, never see. What were some of the factors that looking back on it now that you think helped fuel the exponential rocket ride growth of, of Kiva? One, great question, by the way. One, right as we were starting, Dr. Yunus, 
actually did win that Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> and so I remember one of the, our very first mention in the press, it was like a, um, a Wall Street Journal article about him. And at the very, it was Eunice wins Nobel Prize. Da, 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 da. At the very end, it said, you know, you too can be a microfinancier, go to Kiva.org. It was crazy. So suddenly we were a thing that was relevant. It was also the UN's year of microfinance. So microfinance started to become a household name. We didn't know, just mm-hmm. happened after we had started. Um, so Eunice, Grameen Bank, um, year of microfinance. The world was just starting to become a lot more comfortable. It sounds so crazy now, but using credit cards online, mm-hmm. <laughs> people weren't no, thinking that was a thing. maybe, that was a thing. right? Maybe it's a scam. And I know there's still people that think that way, but yeah. it was becoming a lot, people were a lot more comfortable doing that. And so you could show up with a PayPal account or a credit card and lend money to somebody on the other side of the planet. The, the endlessly interesting, um, I think, all the permutations of human interest stories that came together, you know, the CEO in Oregon lending to the woman in prison in Kenya, because they both, you know, she's making something out of wood and he runs a lumber mill or something. I mean, just like crazy, interesting overlaps. I, I remember we got to be on Oprah and it was it's, its own experience, but there was a woman who did leather work and made handbags and she had funded somebody else who had made handbags. And all the time you'd hear, well, well, I loaned to somebody who had three kids, who has three kids because I have three kids. Or, I mean, there's no right or wrong here, but kids in a classroom choosing the picture with fluffy sheep in the background because that's who they liked when given the option of who to, mm-hmm. as they ever all brought in a dollar and who they could lend to. So I think there's so many interesting stories of human connection, endless, right? Endless numbers of all these lenders and all these borrowers coming together. So that fueled a ton of really interesting press. And usually you don't just want to grow with press, right? It's a spike and then ideally you're at a new normal, but it's very hard to to do that. You want organic, natural (laughs) growth. You want a trajectory that's not super spiky and crazy, but we had a lot of press and servers crashed crashed sometimes. We dealt with it. Um, and we always said yes to those press opportunities because other people did that work of framing and then being ambassadors sort of for the story that was Kiva. So we were really fortunate in having people care and pay attention. I mean, this is not exactly what you asked, but I, I really look at the world as you know everybody's waking up and doing their best each day. A lot of great ideas are out there. People are showing up and doing the really hard work and doing a lot right. We happened to get attention from a lot of people with really big megaphones. So that was absolutely huge in kicking things off. How did you grow? Because you were really young when you launched Kiva. You didn't have a lot of experience leading organizations. How did you grow your own leadership that quickly? I don't want to give myself too much credit. Oh, there's the microfinance joke again, right? Credit. Um, (laughs) There's only one microfinance joke that I know of. That's it. Boom. (laughs) Okay, well, you, I don't want to. I don't want to pat myself on the back too much. I'm not sure. I was very intentional because we were just white knuckling it, and we suddenly the rocket ship took off, and we were just trying to keep up. So it's not as if I had this daily practice of reflection, and I got to read a lot of books or have coaching or anything. I was just trying to do what I've always done in my life, which is even if it's just for the first five minutes before I get out of bed, or the last few minutes before I'd fall asleep at night, reflect, pray, make requests for help. Um, And I think the more you can do as sort of active recovery 
as things are flying at you, the more you can think on your feet and process and be sure about what you're seeing and what it means real time, the more you can grow while you're in the middle of the race. Mm-hmm. I, I swam in high school and I, I remember getting down into the details of what active recovery could be with sort of the, anyone listening won't be able to see this, but imagine freestyle and my hands plunging into the water, mm-hmm. pulling my body forward. And then there is this moment of recovery when your elbow comes up, your hand comes up and you're getting ready to go for the next stroke. Little things like that, those concepts that while you're moving quickly, you can gasp, you can take these little Mm. breaths. And while you're in motion, recorrect, recalibrate. Um, That helped me. How would you do that? I have to say, there wasn't some giant insight like No, 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 that's good. I think the idea of micro rests or or what do you call it, active recovery? Yeah. what, What does that look like for you then and now? Because you're still super busy. I mean, we just barely scratched the tip of the iceberg. What is micro recovery for you or active recovery? I don't think it can happen unless you're super present, like really, really focused on what you're doing in in the moment. And when when you're there, you're there. And then when the meeting stops or the task is complete, or you have, you stand up and get to walk out of the room for two minutes to get another coffee, (laughs) to take a deep breath, give yourself, I mean, pep talk sounds so trite, but- Mm you know, say one of the truths, say one of the things that you believe, give give yourself a little encouragement. It helps me to then sit back down or start the next thing with a little boost. I also, I'm so fortunate, you know, during COVID, so I had a newborn, she was born February 5th. So she, the world got weird really Mm -hmm. fast after she arrived. So we were, we didn't really notice lockdown for a while because we were in the baby cave anyway. And we wouldn't have left the house regardless for a little while (laughs) because we're, Recal- you know, I, I keep using recalibrating. We were adjusting to the new normal of four kids, mm. but everyone's around and I get so much energy from people and so much energy from being with my children. My husband is behind that wall. Usually he's in the office today, but he's right there. I have my people all around me and they're my life. So to go get a little squeeze, a little hug and a kiss. I know it sounds silly, but it really helps me. It really helps me feel um, encouraged and, and full of energy to do the next thing. No, one of our other recent guests, Juliet Funt, talks about these pauses, these minutes to think. And it's something I've practiced for years, right? I can go very intensely, but then five minutes here, just sit and stare at the sky or walk around the house or, you know, just take that pause because I think you're right. We're not robots. Okay, I got to ask you a couple things. Uh, you can feel free to pass on this. Oprah, what was it like? to what did you observe about Oprah? I've heard some wonderful things about the way she interacts with guests, yeah. uh, about the homework she does. She's one of the best interviewers out there, in my opinion. Anything you picked up from Oprah in your exchange with her? Well, I have to say, it's funny. I'm smiling because I was listening to your interview with my friend, Greg McCune. Oh, yeah. Quite recently. I didn't know you knew and he mentioned That's fantastic. Yes, he's he's lovely. Um, yes, we met through the Young Global Leadership Program. Father of four, love. I mean, he's great. He's great in a million ways. <laughs> and I remember he was mentioning to you how she interviews her audience afterwards. Yeah, that blew me away. I didn't right, know that. Right, that was interesting. I didn't know that either because we were whisked back into the green room. Or I, I just didn't. That wasn't the highlight for me when I was there. But that's fascinating. I have to tell you the funniest story for me, you mentioned she does her homework and her team helps do that homework too with her, right? 
So we get there super early. We're in the green room, all the weird things. I'm very low maintenance, but all the weird things that happen to you with hair and makeup and somebody picks the lint off your clothes and somebody straighten your, straightens your hair and then somebody else puts the wave back in. And anyway, um, and dabs your nose and whatever. It's great. And I remember there was a person that came in who sat us down and said, okay, welcome. You know, here are some, this is unscripted, but here are some questions Ms. Winfrey may, may ask you. And based on our research of you, here's some answers that you might provide. And I, I'm telling you at first, I thought I'm just in my head. So mad, like, what, don't tell me what to say. And what do you mean unscripted, but here are your questions. How dare you? This is terrible. I don't know. I had a really strong reaction in, inside about it, but here's the thing. So the first funny thing is it, <laughs> she starts to do the questions and the answers. And as I'm sitting there sort of harumph, like, don't tell me what I would say. The answers are amazing. I'm like, wait, 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 what was that? Tell, tell me again. I need to, I need to write that down. I, I wait, said I that. I just got an upgrade. Keep, keep going. I know. Like, yeah. I would love to have that answer. That sounds great. That was funny. But the other thing was, of course, th- those weren't actually scripted questions. It was their way of imagining how things could unfold. I mean, literally none of the questions came up. Certainly, maybe certain topics were quickly cycled through, but nothing on that sheet actually happened. It was just their prep work. I just, I found it so funny that they had done such work to understand that they'd literally pasted together answers from quotes from talks or other interviews that they had found. (laughs) It was amazing. That's funny, you know, because I've been interviewed on some very big podcasts recently and a couple of them have done that. Like based on your book, here's some points you may want to cover. And there's a part of me, Enneagram 8, that would like chafe against that. And yet I'm like, oh, that's actually really helpful. Mm -hmm. And then I did more prep. I think they're going to be better interviews, which is fascinating, right? But but right. that that is what distinguishes a professional from an amateur is right. the hours, the reps, the prep, the intentionality that goes into it, which is so good. And I always totally. send my questions ahead of time. I think we've, we're on question one right now, uh, 33 <laughs> minutes in. By the way, that's a sign of a great I interview. I did notice that. That was not a nudge. I'm super happy. This is really fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, I always think, well, let's have a flow to the interview. Some really interesting things about your life. And if we get there, we get there. And if we don't, we're just going to have a really good conversation. But I think prep is really important. And a younger me didn't appreciate that. Okay, so that's Oprah. Let's talk about Disney. I didn't even know there was a Walt Disney's Imagineering's first entrepreneur in residence. So what do you do? And what was that fusion like? Like that, that must've been really cool. Well, it was a few years ago and it was fun and funny because I had never been to Disneyland. So I had to quickly like scramble and go and do my homework. So I knew what I was talking about. Anaheim, not. Yeah. 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 I had been there, but I hadn't been to the one, you know, that I can drive to. Right. So I went and I had never, I mean, I, I was thinking about it. I hadn't worked in a, in a, any kind of company remotely like that. And certainly Imagineering, I mean, it's, it's legendary. So the, the short answer there, because all of my answers have been incredibly long. So the short answer there is it was a blast. I learned a lot about that machine, that well-oiled machine that produces so many creative projects and adventures and um, dreams made real for people and bring so much joy to so many people's lives. My focus ended up being on happiness. How can we, I mean, there's so many ways to talk about it, but how can we understand and measure and sort of use that as a metric, right? How do we, how do we use that as 
a more powerful incentive for everybody? How, how does that, how does that show up in their work, in the guests' experiences, in sort of the whole chain, every step of the process? But I also got to do work on social impact and on, it's funny, I can't talk about a lot of the projects, so I'm being very general, but on, at one point I, I noticed that, and there was the request from a lot of execs, like we want to have more diversity. We want to have more women in leadership positions. Why, why does, why isn't that the case? You know, can you help us understand? And I'm not quite an expert in that, but luckily I have friends who helped me be expert. Actually, you know, who else works with me on that project for a, a time we crossed paths with Simon Sinek. Oh, no way. A good friend, and who I know you've interviewed a bunch too. So uh-huh. very small world. Oh, that is, that is really cool. What do you think part of Disney's, from what you could observe and what you can share, continued secret sauce is? Because I mean, Walt Disney died a lifetime ago. The company has gotten bigger and bigger. Some would say better and better. And they have a way of like keeping that dream alive. Did you get any insights into some of the secret sauce with that? There's a, a an incredible completeness. There's an incredible, it's not just attention to detail, but the stories aren't just stories. The characters aren't just characters. They, what they create, like Star Wars, right? It's as important as a religion to some people. And yeah. I know there are it a lot religion of- religion to some people, Star no, and, Wars. I mean, and no, absolutely using that word. No, I know what you mean. Very intentionally, right? Mm-hmm. So- it's not just here's a quick story or a cartoon or a. It, it, they think through every detail. The details all matter. There's not waste, but there's in terms of the story, right? In certain terms of the, the epic tales, it's so intricately and intentionally woven together that it stands up to time, and it stands up to mm. I think people look at those and, and use those as they put a lot of, they can draw a lot of meaning from them, if that makes sense. So it's, it becomes larger than life because they have really made these imaginary ideas, these imaginary people and characters become real. And you also get to have these experiences that galvanize that reality. I mean, you look at, I remember I was there for my gosh, what's the one with the cars? Um, where it's like, oh my no, gosh, my gosh. Uh, McQueen, uh, Lightning. Yeah, 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 yeah. The McQueen yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on, but I went I went to when um, that opened and like the details of the rock in the background like match mm. what they've drawn in the movie. It's really, in, it's really incredible. So there's an authenticity there and a believability. It makes it easy for people to believe and to believe in the whole world that they create around those stories. I remember spending time with uh, an Imagineer a few years ago. I think his name was Brian White. And Brian told me, because I asked him about the past, and he said, one of the principles at Disney is we learn from the past, but we don't live in it. And that's, I thought, really good. Because if you look at what Disney has become, it's so similar and so different to what Walt Disney left when he died in whatever it was, 66 or something. Let's talk about Stanford. Um, sure. So you went to Stanford. You have an MBA from Stanford. 
Uh, that put you in great company with so many other entrepreneurs, everyone from Ramit Sethi to Larry Page, Sandra Day O'Connor, Reed Hastings from Netflix, Reese Witherspoon, who we were already talking about before we got, <laughs> got <laughs> recording, and the founders of Instagram. Um, two questions. What did Stanford do to shape you as a young leader? And secondly, what is in the water there? The alumni... Uh, I've stayed next door to Stanford right at Menlo Park. There's a hotel, the Menlo Park Hotel. You probably know it. And they have all the Stanford alumni through there. And it's just unbelievable to see what that institution has produced in terms of leaders. I am sure there is a brochure answer. And having spent time there as a staffer, as well as a student, and then circling back to lecture. And I wrote case studies for a year as well at one point. um, Oh, you did? I did. So I've been, I, I've seen it from a lot of vantage points and I know the quote unquote, like the, the right answers. I will tell you very personally what I observed yeah, and what I was very moved by. So there's of course the, the compiling of a class, the curating of a class and diversity isn't even the right word for it. There's such an appreciation for so many different paths and fo- areas of areas of study um, you, you have diversity, you have variety in terms of where everybody comes from, but also just how they see the world. So you have this really incredible breadth that you kick it off with. But then the way they nurture a culture of a lot of the right stuff, a lot of, a lot of good stuff. Um, it's again, there's an intentionality there and it comes through in small and big ways. So one example, but it meant a lot to me. So there I was, I said, you know, philosophy and poetry. (laughs) I sort of knew how to do most of the math that would be required, but I mean, it was, I was coming in pretty cold. And so they, they actually did have like a prep, um, two weeks called, um, it was like math for poets or, oh my God, what? I can't believe I'm forgetting this. I should look it up and I can, I can tell you, Hmm. but anyway, I had, I I even like got a, got a warm up there. Um, but here's the thing. Once you, once you start, once you're there, they want you to succeed. And they will bring every possible support that they can to help you out. It, but here's the thing, the community, the fellow students who you wouldn't, you wouldn't think you're in a, a really intense business school, academic setting, other students supported each other more than anything else. And that's because there's this norm, this voluntary um, kind of opt-in grade non-disclosure agreement. Do you know about this? Oh, so uh, students, NDA, yeah, yeah. Well, it's like, the, but it, I'm sorry, it's, a, sorry. It's a grade non-disclosure though. So students all agree. Oh, so you can't disclose your grade. We're not going to talk about grades, which means, you know, when recruiters come to campus, they don't know who's acing accounting and who's struggling. They don't know. They, they don't know. And you're not really allowed to talk about it. And what that does is a few things. One, it really allows people to change directions if that's what they want to do. If they want to shift the trajectory of their work mm. up until that point, they get to come there to make big changes in their life. And they're really supported in doing so. But two, people take classes, I mean, God forbid, right, to actually learn, not because mm. they think they can ace it because they just spent five years as an accountant. They don't need to take accounting. They take what they want to to grow and to learn. So the I, you can say this is a place where we all grow. No, there's actual, there's structure around you that helps make that happen. So you take what you want to because you're excited to learn. You get support from other students because, yes, there's grades on a curve, but doesn't really matter. Like it matters because you want to know how you're doing, but not because it's going to get you the job that you want. You have just as much of a chance to go into something new as anybody else. 
No, it's really a transformative. I think they they set the stage for anybody who wants to take advantage of it being a really transformative experience. It's it's everything's there to help you do that. Wow. That's one thing. Okay, <laughs> I'm so glad I asked that question. We had, uh, I'm sure you know her, Jacqueline Novogratz on recently, and I wanted to ask her about her time. Yeah, you know her. At- I mean, I watched her as a staffer. I'd crash lectures with her too, and I'm like, oh, I want to be her one day. What do I do? How do I do that? Yeah. She's amazing. And She's amazing. I wanted to ask her about Stanford, and we got sidetracked. And I'm like, okay, I've got Jessica coming up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go there. Because <laughs> Perfect. What really interested me is just such an interesting faculty, and like a disproportionate number of difference makers have graduated from Stanford. Yeah. But um, I love the idea of diversity of opinion, thought, and idea. Often in the church world, we have a lot of non-church mm-hmm. leaders listening, but some church sure. world leaders listening. I think sometimes we look for uniformity and perhaps that's why we get stuck. And I'm not talking about, you know, people who don't, you don't want to start hiring people who don't share your faith commitment if you're a faith organization, but just different perspectives. Adam Grant's doing a lot of work on that right now and it's so good. And I think it's people who challenge your thinking and people who look at it differently. And diversity happens. That's male, female, which you were talking about at Disney. It's racial diversity. It's beyond that where people who don't have your background, don't have your assumptions, can contribute. And right now it seems like the world's becoming very tribal. I'm going to find the people who look like me, think like me, act like me, believe like me, and we're going to go sit in our little corner over there. So that's super helpful. What what kind of leader would you be if you didn't have that kind of training? Like, do you see the deficit? And if so, where would it show up? So I'll give you an example. I went to law school, people, yeah, and I, I spent like a year in law. That was it. It was not much. And I was articling in downtown Toronto. Got called to the bar, went straight into seminary. People used to ask me, do you use your law? I'm like, no, I don't use my law. Now I answer it because I'm not doing contracts or I'm not in court every day. Now I say I use it all the time because it shaped the way I think, the way I write books, the way I write, the way I analyze things. It's like, man, that is all law school. It was, that's where I learned all that. So how did, in, in that way, how did your education shape you? It's, Again, that culture, there's just this, there's so many things to talk about, about that yeah. place and about the community and the the ecosystem. I, I'm sure other people have talked about Silicon Valley as an ecosystem and there's mm-hmm. pros and cons, good and bad, all the things, but it, it allowed me to exercise and to grow the muscle of, and I think I already came in kind of strong on this, but it really helped me like beef up, so to speak, of just wanting to ask questions and make sure I wasn't missing any, missing anything and being unafraid to say, I don't get it. <laughs> Tell me more. I really need to, I really want to understand. Um, it also, I didn't mention this part, but I think it relates a lot. Uh, there was, there's a class there. Maybe you have heard about called interpersonal dynamics and the nickname for this class is touchy feely. And it is like a very intense course. Uh, you sit around with 12 people and you get feedback. It's like, it's basically this masterclass in how to, in actual specific feedback about you, about Whoa. the effects of your behaviors, your your gestures, anything, right? It's just, you workshop each other constantly for weeks and weeks. And there's, there are tears. It is intense. It is rough. But You're getting you learn, negative and positive feedback and like. Sure. All of it. Like when wow. you do, and you really get to learn you, it's, it's like an emotional intelligence, you know, crash course. So you get, you get very comfortable 
saying structured sentences, like when you do X behavior, I feel Y feelings, right? If you'd like to have a different effect on me, for example, perhaps to make it more likely that I feel da 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 Z, you know, Z, I guess we're on Z. I might suggest that you make the following adjustments or changes. And so it, it, it gets you, but here's the thing, there's that and there's a bunch of other moments and it's just baked into everything where you get very, not just comfortable with, but like hungry for feedback. And you understand there's not, it's not good, bad. It's, it's information about cause and effect. It's information about whether or not the thing you, you want to have happen out there based on what you're doing and saying, and, you know, if, if it's, if it's happening or not and why. And so that piece, that piece I think has been, I mean, not just invaluable, but if I had to say that a thing that I took away that was, that was top three, you know, that was one of the biggest things. And it's in terms of how it's made me as a leader, that's what jumped to my mind first with your question. If I didn't have that piece, oh, that would be dangerous. I would be kind of flailing. I, I wouldn't be able to hear and see and, and, and really desire, like truly desire, even if it's hard to hear, to des- I want to know how my teammates are feeling and what they are thinking. And if what I'm doing is like working for everybody. And I want to know if my customers like what I'm making or not. I mean, how can you not want to know that? It's hard. It feels sad if you've invested a lot of time with energy and it's, it's your heart out in the world. <laughs> but you got to know and you got to want to know. You have to want to know that information. So you actually take it all in and then make changes if you want, if you decide to. That's the other thing. You don't have to make all the changes just because one guy in your group. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that one guy. Doesn't like that thing that you do, like, good to know. You're just going to keep feeling that way because I'm not going <laughs> to change that about myself because it's just who I am. Right now, I'll be the other 10 people are fine with it. Just kidding. But not actually. <laughs> <laughs> How did you acclimatize yourself? Because that can be devastating. I mean, often in leadership, and this is a very well known pattern, the more power you have, the more you insulate yourself away from that kind of feedback. It's like, bring yeah. me the news I want to hear. Tell me good things, you know, that kind of thing. A lot of people do that, and I think it's a it's a mistake. But the reason we do it is, it, it doesn't matter how old you are. I'm older than you. It's still hard to hear like, oh, when you said that, you really deflated her. She really felt deflated. Or, boy, that really, really derailed the meeting. How did you get yourself used to getting that kind of feedback to the point where you began to crave it? Whether it is because of, whether it's a side effect of my own spiritual journey or life events, I'm not sure, mm. but I, I'm not afraid of feelings. Like, I know that might sound a little silly and small, but I'm not afraid to feel feelings. And you definitely do feel things when that those come at you, but it, I, I believe it's just a part of life and it's natural that our feelings aren't good or bad. And they always pass and you can choose how you express them or even how much you hold on to them or entertain them. Right. Um, So I don't know. I remember when I, Mm. when that class came up in my studies thinking, oh my goodness, finally a class that like, like bring it on. I'm going to do great in this class. Because again, (laughs) a lot of the other ones were very foreign to me. Um, But that one, I'm like, I I cry every day about something. This is great. Let's do this. Like I, I can do the emotions. Like this is, this is my jam. Right. And I think, so I went in pretty psyched because it's, it's part of relationship. It's part of 
understanding yourself. It's part of life to to have feelings and to express them and to hear other people. So I guess that didn't take a climate. It didn't take getting used to that part. Mm. Cause that, cause that's what you're saying. The, yeah. the feelings attached to the information is what can be intimidating to people. I love that stuff. Mm. <laughs> oh no, that's, that's really good. Good to know. You know, it's funny. I mentioned Reed Hastings as an alumnus of, um, of Stanford and we had Aaron Meyer, his co-author in uh, no rules rules, the Netflix book on. And when he mm-hmm. talks about, I forget exactly what he calls them, but this, uh, candid feedback, this candor where radical candor, where they sit around in a meeting and they critique right. each other around a dinner right. table and they all give each other feedback. That sounds like touchy feely. Wonder oh, if you like, it up please, there. can I go to that dinner? Sounds oh, great. Yeah. It does sound like touchy feely without the food. We didn't have food. That'd have been better. <laughs> it might be better with food. Right. <laughs> um, okay. Tell us about what oh, crying food. while eating. Maybe, you know, not as, not as easy. <laughs> I'll order not, another like, uh, also, why Combinator? <laughs> My goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know Brett Hagler? Um, so we're going to, I mean, I, I feel like everyone you're saying, so I was on a panel with Reed one time, which was so funny because I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm talking about Kiwi. You're talking about Netflix, but here we are. Um, and then Brett is a dear friend ah. and he, I'm an advisor to new story. And then, um, yeah, there's a lot of crossover. The first nonprofit partner that altruists, which we'll talk about later, yeah, worked yeah. with was new story of all the oh, nonprofits out there that I've encountered. I'm like, I want to work with Brett first. Let's do this. Brett's amazing. He's amazing. So another yeah. graduate of Y Combinator. Yes. So we picked his brain on it. So give us the elevator pitch for what Y Combinator is and then why you went through it, because that's where you launched altruists, right? I Honest? launched a little bit before. And then we sort of, yeah, you like get to every demo day is the, the launch or the relaunch of all things. Right. So there are a few reasons I sought that out. So on one hand, I look at I looked at a program like that and I'd never considered it because I thought, oh my gosh, I'm an old fart. I kind of know what to do. Do I really need like a program? And it's an exchange of value. I mean, you give you right. I, I don't want to say give away equity. You do receive funding, which is awesome, but it, it's a pretty, it's a it's pretty expensive funding. I'd already raised it at a much higher valuation. But I thought, one, it's virtual. I'm not going to leave LA and, you know, wave goodbye to my four kids for a few months to go do this program live. So the fact that it's virtual, this is an interesting moment in time. Maybe I should try it. It would be access to community in the middle of brand new community. A lot of it anyway, in the middle of COVID. So I got very excited about that. Um, I really did want to refresh on, on, you know, I wanted to be in the know and what are the cutting edge tools and technologies I felt a little bit out of loop just from the last few years. My work hadn't necessarily required that I knew exactly what all the best tools for a startup founder to access. And those things really matter. I mean, they can really fast track and, and save you so much time when that's the that's the greatest um, resource, right? That you have to protect. I love learning. I wanted to learn. And then the more, maybe the most interesting, I'll, I'll skip to the most interesting answer. Um, you know, I founded a unicorn and... It was a nonprofit, so I often felt justified or not, like I was on the outside a little bit of the club. Mm-hmm. And you know, I left Kiva. I didn't. There's no cashing out. You might drop and get a job the next day and pay off your student loans. You know, so I don't have any regrets on the fact that we decided Kiva should be a 501c3. It's it was the very best structure for it to get up and running and have a real shot and to grow. Again, it's great. So. That said, I definitely 
A, I couldn't afford to attend certain conferences that I got invited to that were pretty exclusive that, 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 because I did, I wasn't compensated financially Mm. for Kiva directly. I've, I've been compensated in so many other ways that I value more. The currencies that I value so much more are, you know, autonomy and integrity. I get to work with people I, I, I loved and I, I believed in. I got to build something that mattered to me. There's lots of other things. So no regrets. That said, I felt a little bit on the outside and I, there was a little tiny bit of me, again, it was a, sort of an extra piece that happened with my desire to, to try to do YC, but I kind of just wanted to see, I wanted to be in the club. I wanted to see what was on the inside. I'd heard so much about it. I'd funded companies that had gone through it. And yet I'd never done a program like that myself. I'd spoken at programs like that. I mean, I had been again, weirdly on the outside, kind of already leapfrogged it. I felt like in a certain way, but I really wanted to see what the, all the fuss was about. And it, I thought it's only going to be a good thing. Worst case, I'll make a lot of really wonderful friends. And I, and I mm. certainly did and found a lot of wonderful mentors and encouragers and supporters of, of um, and investors. My goodness, Demo Day again. It was, it was amazing. It was an amazing and very efficient way to find my people. You mentioned Demo Day. Can you walk us through? So Y Combinator is a venture capital incubator that very few people get into. And then yeah, Pitch Day, Demo Day, where you have to kind of pitch your proposal, see if it gets, what, accepted. So it's almost like Shark Tank. It's been around a lot longer than that. But if you can imagine that, that's what it is for a very exclusive, tiny percentage of startups in Silicon Valley. Is that yeah. roughly accurate? Yeah, I would. it's an accelerator. It's a program for entrepreneurs to really um, catalyze what they're doing and have this discrete amount of time, this focused catalyzed time to, you know, push forward and, and take a crack at sometimes they come in with just an idea. Sometimes it's already up and running. Sometimes people have been chipping away at something for many months already, but the common denominator is they're at a point when they want to get things going a little more quickly and they want community, they want information, they want reminders perhaps. And the demo day at the very end is this opportunity to ship. You have a one minute window. And you get to say, who you, I mean, every word, every breath, it, it's precise and you get to give your pitch. And then there's a lot of different ways people can follow up with the two main ones. And this is kind of built into the incredible system, the technology that they've built. You can get like, show some love, just good work. That was great. You know, or investors will reach out saying, this is me. I'd like to have a conversation about investing. And we got hundreds of those. And I followed up with every single one. Many of them became customers. Some of them became investors and we got what we needed and, and, and much more. Wow. So it's a, re- it's a really, really powerful thing. I mean, I already had investors. I already have a wonderful community. It was very additive. It was very um, like icing on the cake. It was incredible. Hmm. Incredible. You mentioned tools. You wanted to be up on the latest tools. What did you discover? Cause this is very recent, right? You just went through this during COVID. What, um, are there any tools or tips or tricks you want to share with leaders? It's like, oh, I've discovered this and this is amazing. You know, I would say there are, I'm worried my answer will be boring because it's not like these are, it's not like news, but you know, I, I, I had a person that I would have gone to, to do HR and, um, you know, some payroll stuff, but I, 
I had an option to sign up with Rippling. So I did that. It's, it's silly and what? small, but it's, you know, it's automated. So I feel like in the very beginning, it's a big deal to have full-time anyone. So it's yeah. me and it's two others now, actually, as of today, my third person starts. She made me this mug. She's amazing. Um, oh. <laughs> so as of today, we have three full-time employees, but there are contractors, like this cloud of contractors that are great. And then there are just some amazing um, technologies that allow us to just get done what we need to get done through these, these, it's more robust than just, um, you know, a platform where you can figure things out yourself. There's, there are people behind it, making it a lot easier for you. So Rippling's been great bench for accounting. What else? Um, I signed up for Brex. It's really interesting. I mean, these I, are all new to me. So you know Rippling, Rippling. Yeah. Or- Okay, Rippling and then Brent. I really feel silly. I don't want to do a commercial for anybody. No, that's okay. <laughs> this is this new. But it's stuff. been helpful. They handle HR and payroll, make it yeah. really easy to run payroll. To they have a bunch of templates to do offer letters, things like that. Um, they even do. The, the great thing is you can grow. You can see running a hundred percent company or more on this. They right. help you. Yeah, on, on do all the on ramps and off ramps with people onboarding and offboarding. Um, so that's great. And then what else? I think I learned a lot of a lot of small little hacks that helped me. Um, for example, uh, there is I had never used any sort of any sort of special email <laughs> platform, but I signed up with Superhuman because it claims that it could reduce my time on email by fifty percent, and I feel like it's just this black hole. That's that's the one thing I hadn't gotten great at. I felt like. At, in terms of being efficient, like there was no hack yeah, that yeah. I could. Oh, you know what? I and it actually reduces my time. Human. I'm not kidding. It probably actually has done that, which is really I mean, yeah. Because they have all the once, but you have to learn. So you, there's a little bit of a ramp up where you have to learn shortcuts on the keyboard, and you're in a totally different, you know, interface. But then it gets fast. Oh, that's good because I think I was on a, a beta for Superhuman like a year or two ago, and it sort of disappeared into the ether. I don't know where, but um, I'll have to check that out. again. Okay, that is super practical tips. Tell us about um, altruists. That's what you're doing now. Is that most of your time these days? Other than parenting four children and correct all that. Well, it's it's lovely because there's overlap a little bit. So, I work on Untapped Capital with my partner Yohei, and I do altruists. And altruists is the vast majority of my time. Um, Just to give Untapped a shout out, we invest in entrepreneurs who are in some way unexpected and who are often under-networked. And mm. so what we're able to do is find them super early, really early. Yohei's incredible and has built custom um, CRMs and, and our, air, our Airtable sort of, it's very it's a very giant group at the top of the funnel. And then we work our way down. But the, the idea is that many funds operate um, and rely on deal, on deal flow, like passive leads, right? And so we're trying to get ahead of that and actually do outreach as the primary way of finding new portfolio companies. It's a, it's a whole other interesting piece, but basically we invest in founders that for, per, perhaps are industry experts, but not tech savvy, or they're in a very small town somewhere in America that doesn't have a great ecosystem or community. And we'll, we'll find them and we'll introduce them to the people that they need, or maybe a, a, a very young founder or a heads down founder, or there's a, there's a, a, several different sort of profiles of, of the kind of entrepreneur and entrepreneurs. What's that? You connect them to investors. Right. We, connect, we, really we fund awesome. them and then we connect them to other investors, which is valuable for them. And often what we're able to do is come in 
at a lower valuation. It's very, it's very efficient for us. And then introduce them to folks that get excited as well. And by that time at different rounds later, their valuation will have gone up. Um, that's that. But altruists is <laughs> my dream is to make volunteering easier and more interesting, more fun, more rewarding, not just for kids, but for families and beyond. So the broader vision is eventually being the connector between the mob of people. I mean, 90% of people say they want to volunteer more, but Mm -hmm. they don't because it's hard to find opportunities, hard to schedule them. Often, you know, um, they're not that interesting. So it's like the same old thing. I mean, we can probably all, each of us, if, if I pushed anybody listening or you write to name five volunteer activities that you could think of that are things you could go do. That's kind of all that you make a kit, right? Okay. Um, soup kitchen, like candy striper. There's like a handful of these go-to ideas that we have that are very traditional ways of volunteering. And I'm not counting even church and sports and schools. There's a lot that that's the majority of, um, you know, where philanthropic dollars and a lot of our time goes, but other volunteer opportunities with wonderful nonprofits that are making big changes in the world, like news story, it's hard to know how to plug in. So there's this incredible enthusiasm and desire from most people to volunteer more, but they're not ending up getting there. They don't get there for a variety of reasons that we're solving for. On the other side, nonprofits, they, they can benefit a lot from volunteers. Sometimes nonprofits will, their gut reaction might be, because I, I used to sit in that chair, right? Like I know that side of things and it can be a pain in the butt and an, a time suck to manage volunteers. And so they don't always have the bandwidth or the skill set to design really interesting, engaging and high impact projects. So what I want to do is live in the center and bring everyone together. And we're starting first with kids because as a parent of four under 10, I have really struggled. I had so much, such an aspiration to volunteer with my kids regularly. It's something I did growing up. And as more I think about it, of course, it was when I was more of a teenager than a little kid. Mm. It's very hard to find volunteer activities that are appropriate for kids that are not just donor grooming. I mean, let's be honest, that actually like mean anything and where you, you're actually doing something helpful. That's funny. No, I'm serious, right? No, I know what you mean. Yeah. It's not just show up and it's something nice for the participant, for the volunteer. I'm doing air quotes for those listening. Um, So Altruists creates family-friendly volunteer projects and giving um, opportunities, these experiences in a box. We have subscription. The the, the first main product is a subscription, a monthly subscription where every few weeks you get this box delivered to your door, very much like a lot of the other subscription boxes that show up at all of our doors on a regular basis, certainly ones for kids, where there are projects, but there's also a wrapper around it. There's, um, There's context, there's learning, there's empathy building, where you hear stories of people that have experienced this issue probably in a lot of a different, not just a little bit of a different way, but a drastically different way than the recipients of this box might have. So for example, clean water, my kids think, well, you walk to the sink and turn it on and you get your clean water. It's not the story that many others experience day to day to day. So we get stories from kids. We get other empathy building kind of activities going. So kids really understand what the majority world experiences in in these topics. Then there's an actual volunteer project. So for example, you mentioned Brett and New Story. Mm -hmm. For New Story, our first box where I have it, do I have it here? Do I have it here? Oh, I cleaned my off. Oh no, I do have it. Basically, we worked with New Story to develop a house. I'm sorry, a box on housing and homelessness. Oh, and the volunteer cool. project is it's such a pretty box, I think. Um, right? Yeah, that's beautiful. Basically, those of you um, watching on YouTube. 
Yeah, it's pretty. Wow. And you get, you get booklets that all these mini books that help you understand the issue, build empathy, and then you build you do a volunteer activity. The first box had a, a keychain activity, so kids make two different keychains, one to keep, one to give, and they write a card and they mail that into new story. And then the very first house key that some a family is receiving to move into the house that Brett's just built for them comes with this keychain. It comes on the keychain that our kiddos, our community of um, volunteers has made for them. That's just one example. This month is, uh, <laughs> we're shipping in like a few days, a pollinator hotel. So it's oh, not always we all need bees. I just planet as well. somewhere. That is really cool. It's super fun. And then after that, it's a focus on hunger. After that, it's a focus on refugees. After that, clean water. And then on and on. We have 18 months planned out and amazing projects planned. By the way, just for listeners, if you go to the show notes, we will link to all the mutual friends we talked about, including Brett Hagler, uh, Simon Sinek, the interviews we did with him, with uh, with Greg McEwen. So uh, this is all good space. People are doing wonderful things. I love that idea. And if you've never checked out the podcast on YouTube, that was worth it at the one hour and seven minute mark of this interview to go <laughs> and see those boxes. That is super cool. Our church, man. We have uh, we have not covered more than we've covered in our time together today, which is a really good sign. We're going to have to do a round two because I have so many questions uh, I'd love to ask. Here's where I'd like to close on this, Jessica. Sure. Um, a lot of people do run volunteer organizations. What do you, particularly churches, and you have experience in the church, and we, we didn't get there today, but... What would you advise people who are running charities and impact organizations who are looking for volunteers to do differently? The first thing I would say to those individuals is thank you. Hmm. Doing important work. You're doing work that the world does not always honor in traditional ways or reward in traditional ways. So thank you (laughs) for standing in that gap and waking up every day and working on problems and serving people who, who are overlooked in a lot of ways. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I would say is, you know, I've thought a lot about what works and what doesn't in nonprofits, certainly in terms of gathering, gathering supporters around and saying in a way that is easily received and enthusiastically received, talking about the work that needs to be done, right? There's a lot of bad news that needs to be shared before you can get to the good news. Here's how you can help. So I guess I'd say, having been there myself, it is easy because you you work on you work on big scary problems in the world that that matter to a lot of people whose voices are never heard. You do that because you have a big heart because you have passion. You're not there for you're not there for the money. You're there for other things. And I think mm-hmm. it can feel because it is so emotional in a good way, right? I think it can feel over time like why is nobody listening? Not nobody, but why yeah. why are not why aren't more people caring about this the way that I so deeply care about it? So I think it's important to remember to sort of take a deep breath, step back and and realize that there's a first time for everybody hearing about this, hearing about the reality that is your day-to-day and to continually meet people right where they are. I had a critic with with altruists recently write a, a small blog piece and basically say, well, this is terrible because if somebody does this, they might feel good about themselves and then not do all the other work that needs to be done. You know what? 
meet people where they are. Take that one tiny step, even though you wish they took 10 more, right? Just meet them where they are. Be grateful for that and give them really important, meaningful um, roles that actually tie into what matters for the outcomes of the organization. I think people know when they're they're being patronized or they're not being giving, being given something important to do. So when you ask for advice, ask for involvement, make it matter, allow, mm. give people some trust and some responsibility. Um, early on with Kiva, we love people to do these, these micro volunteer projects where they could come in and translate a business posting for an entrepreneur that had been perhaps posted in French or Swahili, and they could translate it into English. So the majority of our lenders at the time could read it. There, there are always ways to involve people with boundaries, with safety nets that really give them, allow them to have their fingerprints on the work. And so I think every person that even takes a tiny step towards you, figure out a way, figure out ways to give them real ownership over um, actually being involved, not just, you know, asking, asking for their, their financial support. Have um, people, can people get involved directly with altruists or do you have to be involved through company or organization? How does that work? I mean, being involved is getting one of our projects and getting going on it and joining the community. Oh, that so way. you can it's just pretty... go to the website? Oh, yeah. We sign up for a cool. subscription. And soon, actually later this month, we'll have a store where you can buy one-off boxes as well. Sort of after the subscribers get them, a few weeks later, they'll show up in the store. So you missed the housing box. It already shipped. But <laughs> soon you'll be able to get it. Um, that's the most direct, best way. But if people out there have ideas about... Uh, nonprofits, issues, volunteer projects, anything like that. I'm still learning so much every day. Hopefully I always will be. And I'm all ears. So I, I'd love to hear about an organization that you love, that you think might want to have a conversation about partnering. I'd love to hear about your school or your corporation and figuring out a way to do a group um, project. I think as workplaces evolve and as the office slowly dies, or at least is altered, when people want to, when teams want and need to do um you know, a team building activity to be able to, everyone has their own little kit, their project to sit and do together, maybe over Zoom or something. But if they have to do it apart, this is a really great way to do something like that. Okay. And how would they find that? Where would they, what website? Altruist. So it's, we, we use two L's, um, A-L-L-T-R-U-I-S-T-S, altruists.com. Okay, great. Jessica, this has been an absolute joy. And I'd love to do it again. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, I just love talking to leaders like Jessica. That was so inspiring and uh, just just a fascinating conversation. I think that's probably a round one and we'll definitely have to have a round two. Well, if you're brand new to the podcast, hey, just know that we got you covered. Everything that we talked about is in the show notes. You can find that over at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 455. Yeah, we've got some great episodes coming up. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do. And uh, yeah, come along for this journey. It's a fun one. We interview all kinds of interesting people. Uh, Who have we got coming up? We got Donald Miller. Mark Sayers is back. Uh, Kara Powell is going to join us. Katie Cole. We've got Dave Hollis. Nikki Gumbel. Ian Morgan Cron is going to come back. He's a regular guest now. But next time, it's AJ Harbinger and Johnny Zubak. And they are from the Art of Charm podcast. We did a mic swap. I was on their show. I'm having them on my show. And uh, we talk about how they started. For those of you who want to get into podcasting, how they started the Art of Charm over a decade ago. Some fascinating stories. 250 million downloads later. They're really honest about where it goes. Here's an excerpt. 
and there is bad publicity too, but but funny. So so the Today Show invites us on, yeah. and, and they come in to see all the training that we're doing with our clients and who we're working with. And sure enough, some SNL writers are watching the Today Show saying, who are these clowns who think they own New York City? So two weeks later, we're watching Saturday Night Live like the mm -hmm. rest of America and the weekend update comes on and they're making fun of the art of charm. Charm school in New York City. Learn how to get better with women at the local YMCA with these losers. And my dad called <laughs> me and he's like, were you just made fun of on Saturday Night Live? That's next time on the podcast. Would love to have you not miss that episode. And the best way to do that is to subscribe. You can do that for free wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying this show, please leave a rating and review. We try to read every single one of them and they make a difference. That's how we get noticed. That's how new people discover us uh, as they scroll to see what podcast they would listen to. And of course, if you enjoyed this episode, share it on social, uh, text it to a friend, email it to a friend and let us know about it. You can reach me, by the way, at carry at carrynewhoff.com. And I would love to hear from you. I also do a lot of writing over at kerryneuhoff.com and uh, would love to have you check out what we do over there. We've got courses. I write blog articles on a regular basis and so much more. Thanks to our podcast partners. Uh, they make this possible for you so we can have a whole team that brings you this and uh, you get it for free. Check out what they have. We pick them very carefully. Pro Media Fire would love to help you. They're taking on a limited number of social media management clients. You can sign up today. Be one of that small group over at promediafire.com slash carry. That's promediafire.com slash carry. Red Letter Challenge is back. Why not kick off the year with a 40-day challenge? They get all these resources and packages just for your size church over at redletterchallenge.com slash carry. That's redletterchallenge.com slash carry. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Hey, we are now emailing about 85,000 leaders pretty much daily, giving them a little nugget of leadership gold every day. We got a lot planned for the new year. We're so excited to have you along. And uh, that's all over at kerryneuhoff.com. If you want to subscribe to my email, go to kerryneuhoff.com slash email. Thank you so much, everybody. Hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week. We'll catch you next time. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Kerry Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.